by Rebecca Spencer. from almost the halfway line. Welcome back to N17 Women, the only podcast fully focused on Tottenham Hotspur women. I'm Caroline, and I am joined once again with my co-hosts, Rachel, Sean, and Abby. How are y'all doing today? Yeah, enjoying a bit of a World Cup men's football. I'm not enjoying the men's World Cup after their players and FAE and FIFA's um, antics today. So I am largely ignoring the men's World Cup at this point, to be honest with you, and uh, trying to focus on next weekend in the women's football, not last weekend. Yeah, I think we are all going to be looking forward to the women's World Cup next summer much more, um, at least with less complicated feelings for sure. Well, we also have complicated feelings about Spurs women, unfortunately, because we had another game against one of the top four teams that did not end in a positive result for us. Uh, So we were playing Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, and the final score was 3-0 to the home team. For our starting lineup, we had Tini Corpola in goal, our usual back four of Asmita Ale, Shalina Zadorsky, Molly Bartrip, and Amy Turner. Angrad James and Evelina Sumanen in the double pivot, Fence and Bizet and Ash Neville. And then Jess Naz was playing as striker for the injured Nicola Karcheska. So what did we think about this lineup to start with? I think, you know, we knew ahead of time that Nicola was not going to be fit to play. So that was definitely, I think, a blow to our confidence as a podcast about this game. But did you feel good about the lineup otherwise? Or was there anything you would have changed? I actually, so yeah, I think that this first part is not controversial. I do not think Jess works as a striker. I think that she doesn't have the the presence that's required that Rianne Skinner seems to require of her strikers. Um, We can talk more about that later. Um, But I actually, and this is the unpopular part, think that Roz does. And like, obviously she struggles with shooting but I think with some of the rest of the things she's better for organizing the team around as a striker so I wish I wish we'd seen Roz starting up top instead of Jess because those were really our only two options it was scraping the bottom of the barrel on that one and I think that I would have rather seen Roz there yeah we also were uh scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of the bench was once again uh not at full capacity So not as many, you know, reinforcements to bring on as options. I mean, any, any other thoughts on the lineup before we talk about, you know, the actual goals, anything about the formation? I mean, it's pretty much what we expected it would be, isn't it? Um, I think um, we know that that's kind of the way Rianne wants to play. We know that whether she's got Nikki or not, she's going to try playing that way. And from our perspective, we don't think it works unless Nikki's there um, or we get in another striker. Um, which I think we said at the beginning of the season, having only one striker was a worry for us, and it's proved to be the case, I think. Um, but yeah, nothing really surprising beyond the the goalkeeper situation when we never know who's going to be in goal. I don't really mind either way who's in goal, but it's always fun to see who's going to be playing there. Yeah, I think it made sense to have uh, Tinny in goal for this game. Uh, it wasn't going to be a game where we were do- playing out a lot, um, although we can come to that because I think there were some issues around how the defence played out. But as Sean says, it wasn't highly surprising, the lineup. I guess I am not in Abby's camp of wishing to see Roz, just I don't think I could have coped watching it if Roz had been on the field from the start. I'm yet to be convinced that she's somebody that is anything but frustrating and stressful to watch so she does do some things well and there were moments actually when she was combining with Jess and allowing Jess to go out into the wing which does work Um, but I think if we'd have had to do something then maybe I don't even know what we would do you could do a whole moving around of parts somehow and pulled drew up further and maybe brought in another defender or something in I don't know maybe put Amy into center uh, defensive midfield and 
hold on Gracie or Keris. There's so many. I think I hate to say it, but Roz is almost never in my starting lineup. I can see why she can sometimes be an effective substitute, but I just don't want to see us starting a game with her on the pitch at the moment until she does something that makes me think she is more consistent and yeah, brings others into play better. The only thing I will say is I maintain my um, statement that Shalina passes to Roz a lot. So when Roz is on the field, you notice, or I notice anyway, I don't know if anybody else notices that all of a sudden Shalina's playing quite a few long balls up to the striker. You know, I hadn't noticed, but I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out for it now. <laughs> it's funny because when you mentioned that before, I had never noticed it before. And then in this game, I was like thinking about what you said. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so right. Although I did see her play like one or two in the first half, but but it was way more after Ross came onto the field. I think we're all missing the big answers that we should have just stuck Ash Neville up top. It would have been great. <laughs> well, we played everywhere else and it's worked. So why not? Yeah, I mean, that's the only experiment left besides goalkeeper, right? So why not? I will say for Rosella's sake, uh, this was her 50th WSL appearance. And, you know, that is a, a big achievement. And while she might not be our preferred starter, I think she does have, you know, a role to play in the squad this season. So we did not score any goals in this game, but we conceded three. I think we need to talk a little bit about them. The first goal happened in the 12th minute. There was a long ball from Millie Bright to Sam Kerr, um, probably a more effective version of the Zadorsky to Ion pass. And, you know, Sam Kerr loves to score against us. So that one did feel somewhat inevitable, but it definitely was not a, a shining moment for our defense or for Corpella, I think. Would y'all agree with that? I mean, she made the whole back line look like bowling pins, basically. I think that's all I really have to say about it. It was just nobody shown there. Like the ball from Molly out that was cut out was like it, it was kind of a decent ball, but it wasn't really to anyone. It landed like right between Jess and Celine and like neither one went to it. So it just went to Millie Bright. And then like Shalina kind of missed her tackle on Sam. Like she got it, but she didn't hit it hard enough. So Sam just kept going. And then, like, several of our other defenders did do well by racing back to cover goal line, but um, then they just didn't. And so, yeah, bowling pins all around. I mean, I feel that was kind of a problem for us throughout was clearances just weren't strong enough. Um, too much of the time they were just falling to the wrong people as soon as they were cleared out. Um, it's difficult to say because, I mean, it was a brilliant ball from Millie Bright. And I think most defences in that situation where really at that point only Shalina was back in line with Sam Kerr the others were ahead of her and, and had to run back um I think most defenses would struggle but yeah it was it was not the way we wanted to start the game no it definitely made the defenders look as Abby very evocatively says like bowling pins they were all left stranded there was a line of three plus Tinny in front and it didn't it wasn't a good look um, but I do think that you guys are right to identify the passes out as where the actual problem was and was the repeated problem throughout the game. And it was from Molly, but it was also Amy and Shalina, less so Azzy, who, if she made poorer passes, they tended to be slightly further up the pitch. Um, and it wasn't that there was that Chelsea were pressing very hard all the time. They were in spurts, but that wasn't necessarily when the poor passes came. And so it is definitely something that we need to think about, whether that is about people, other players being in finding space and being in more predictable positions or whether it's around those defenders just taking more of a moment and whether that was harder at Stamford Bridge in that atmosphere. You know, there was they Chelsea said there were it was sold out it wasn't sold out, but there would have been at least, you know, over 20,000 people, which was a much bigger crowd than most of the you know, than we're used to. So there would have been a higher level of pressure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in some ways that goal felt like the most forgivable. And I don't think that Spurs responded badly to that one. That felt like the goal that in some ways motivated them. I think that the Spurs were playing decently before it and were probably playing better after it. Um, I think that the next two goals were the the sort of real kick in the teeth and the double whammy for different reasons and where there were real 
whether you know we can discuss the penalty i know we're going to but i think the one before that is the real goal which took the wind out of spurs yeah i do think it it gave a little bit of momentum to chelsea where they had not had any up until that point necessarily I I slightly disagree that it was the most forgivable goal because for me, I actually thought the second goal, um, which happened in the 26th minute was simply a fabulous shot from Aaron Cuthbert. The problem was that it was one of those set piece scenarios where she was afforded way too much space in which to make the shot. Uh, So from a defensive standpoint, like, yes, uh, someone should have been closing her down, but it was an incredible shot at the same time. Did y'all see it differently? I think for me, it's just that she was in, I feel like it's the identical position that she was in when she scored against us in preseason. She Mm. scored from just outside the area in to the left and it felt like a a repeat. And I think that was what made it slightly less forgivable is that we had so recently experienced how she could shoot from that position and the fact that she was left in so much space and there were three or four players running away from her towards the goal in a slightly ineffective way where they they there were too many people to do anything and then she was left in all this space that's where I think I was concerned I agree because um that moment you were talking about players running away from her So it was another one of those situations like I've talked about before where like, I can't remember which Chelsea player was making that run, but they were all, so it was like Evelina, I think Ismita, and I can't remember who the third Spurs player was. I should have noted this down, but they were all tracking the same Chelsea player. That Chelsea player basically like made this very dangerous and very smart run. Um, And then everybody like ran into each other and sort of couldn't recover, which left Aaron Cuthbert free and it was a kind of situation where I was I can't remember even what game I was saying this about where like other teams are like running plays on us and we need to work on learning how to defend plays being run on us because it happens and like the good teams like run plays on their set pieces and like you need to have some sort of protocol in which to be like okay, you follow the runner, you follow, you stay with the standing person. Oh, now we switch. Like, it's not hard. We just need to do it. And I think Chelsea deserves credit for that run because it was a really smart run. And then like Aaron Cuthbert deserves a huge amount of credit for that strike because it was like the perfect strike. It had so much curve on it. And so like the strike itself, like we definitely like can forgive that because it was just it was gorgeous most of the time those hit off people they don't always go in it was a crowded box it was just real nice but I do think that this points back to the issues we've been having defending like plays on set pieces basically yeah I think this is the one where I I have the least amount of blame for Corpella I don't think she was saving that one you know well she tried yeah it was a valiant effort (laughs) and she did make a couple of decent saves like there was one where she She dived to um Sam Kerr's feet which was it was Mm. Sam Kerr wasn't it it was running at her and that was pretty good Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. I mean I don't yeah I don't think you know I mean there was some falling about on the floor from Corpello you know getting the ball and you know um rescuing it from situations I think I don't I don't think it was a hugely bad game on her behalf, um, you know, on a penalty was the other goal. So, you know, as a keeper, most keepers don't save those. So, um, you know, I don't think there's a huge amount to say that that Tinney did wrong in that situation. But, you know, defensively, maybe the only thing is organisation of the defence and getting involved with that a little bit better. She could have been involved in that a bit more. Um, and that first goal, yeah, I just think the way that ball was played meant that she was unprepared for it. She was expecting her defence to deal with that better. And, I mean, they played some dodgy balls back to her as well, um, particularly one early on, you know, where she was really in, in kind of close proximity to somebody and had to just get rid of it quickly. So I think her defence did play her into problems a lot this game. Yeah, sometimes I worry that our defence, like, forgets that they have Tinny back there and not Becky when moments like that happen. And like, to her credit, she dealt with it well, but it's just, I just sometimes wonder. Well, you see, but I just worry when they do it with Becky because it always makes me, you know, miss a beat when Becky's doing that techie Becky stuff at the back. Yeah, that's fair. 
she has been known to mess it up. I mean, we can talk about Coventry um, later on, and we will talk about Coventry later on, but there was a moment in that game last season where Becky was completely at fault for one for their for their getting back into the game. I mean, Tinny is calm and composed and will get rid of it, but it's not her game to be doing the, the techie stuff. Becky likes to do it, but I'm not sure she's necessarily any better at it than anybody else some of the time. But well, you're right about Tinny being calm. I mean, there were definitely moments where she did that thing that she does really well, which is just sort of holding onto the ball, not really like going to release it, realizing that people are not set and slowing things down. And that is one of the things I really like and appreciate about her being in goal for us. Yeah, she always looks very calm. Um, I appreciate that too about her. Let's get on to the penalty. That was the third and final goal for Chelsea in the 36th minute. And I think Esmita Ale did a pretty good job for the majority of the game when it came to containing Lauren James. You know, this is one of the top forwards in the league, period, right now um, with James. And she had this one moment where she slipped up and Ash, you know, kind of had to come in to do some emergency defense. And from my perspective, I think it was a very unlucky penalty call for Ash. I think there was just as much of a tripping factor from James as much as there was you know actual penalty contact from Neville uh did y'all see it differently I think on the on the day we we were so far away from it we were right at the up, up at the other end so we assumed that it was fair enough penalty because it looked from there you know if you tripped in the box penalty but looking it back I think it's difficult to see I think it well, well first of all i on the day had some messages from people watching at home saying that was a soft penalty um uh, and then watching it back it's difficult to see any intent from ash to do anything and i know it's not only about intent but it's difficult to see that there was any intent to to do anything other than move around lauren james um and so i think it was very i think it was harsh i think the yellow card was harsh given that situation um and i do also i mean i've seen some questioning and some interesting um, stills to question whether that actually whether whether contacts that did happen whether that happened in the box or not and I think it looked quite strongly like it might have happened on the edge of the box and she just fell in the box and therefore was a free kick and not a penalty so I think Ash whatever way you look at it got the the bum end of the deal on that one from some perspective um, I mean and when you're 2-0 down against Chelsea and I, and the second goal I think did disrupt us I think we started to look like we were being um, a little bit panicked after the second goal and our play did become less good for that section of, of the game. Uh, but when, you know, 2-0 down, you're like, oh, my life, we're not going to get back in this. And then 3-0 down, you can see why players' heads drop against the side like Chelsea. And I think it was unlucky. And I think also, to some extent, there's been a little bit of talk online about, amongst Ash and the England stuff, about Ash being, you know, the way she tackles and things. wonder if that got into anybody's head but um yeah I think it was a soft a soft penalty is the nicest thing I can say about it well I'll be less nice I just watched it back and I watched very carefully as Lauren James's heel gently grazed Ash Shovel's knee as she was running and then she moved her own toe to kick her own calf I saw her calf jiggle and then she fell so um it was beautifully executed because the first time I saw it, I was like, Oh yeah, that's a trip. And it was not like, you always see these plays of like men's players tripping over their own calves and going down dramatically. And like, that was not what this was. She was so convincing, but in my opinion, not to get spicy about it, it was a dive. It was a good dive. And I actually respect her for that. I thought it was really well executed. I, I will go on record saying that I am a big fan of the dark arts. Um, I wish that she hadn't done it against us. Uh, I don't think it was a penalty. I think if there had been VAR, that would have gotten overturned. Um, Although it would have been close because like, it wasn't so theatrical that you were like, that's fake. And it was like, you could only see it from some angle, but like the commentators at first were saying like, oh yeah, you can't do that. Stone cold pen. And then there was like this one angle where they started going like, "Mm, I don't know about that. And I was like, I thought that for me was like, I was like, yeah, okay. Even they're admitting it. And they've been like pretty biased all game. So like, 
I thought it was really brutal. I was not expecting to have that strong opinion on it because as you guys know, I watched the game later after it actually happened. And I thought there would have been more of a ruckus about that. Um, if like, but yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not how other people saw it, but that's how I saw it. I I like your interpretation. I'm willing to buy it. Definitely because I saw it first in the stadium. And like Sean said, from a distance, you were like, yeah, that's a penalty. And, you know, because Spurs felt a bit rattled after the second goal, it did feel like we were at a point where we would concede again, where people were a bit desperate, where things might go wrong. Watching it back, I now, I do still think Ash touched her and if that happened in the penalty box it almost doesn't matter what else happened it ends up being a penalty but I do think it might have been outside of the box so I feel like it was so borderline that you would need like this is where the ref you know like it's a 13 minute VAR decision the ref gets called over to look at the screen and still spends five minutes looking at it and I think like you just reminded me I think it's worth saying that like even though I think that Lauren James on purpose tripped herself, you can't like, she's going to do that. Like good players are going to do that. And so you really can't give them the opportunity. And so like in that way, the worst thing I could possibly say about Ash is like, it was a little bit naive, but I don't think it was a foul. Like, I don't think Ash fouled her. I think she just like unintentionally gave rise to the opportunity. Yeah, I think we're going to have VAR next season, right? So these sort of discussions are going to be more prevalent next season for sure. Maybe we feel a little hard done by on that specific goal, but on the whole, I think it's fair to say the Spurs did not do enough to get a result out of this game. You know, defensively, we were quite vulnerable and, you know, we had a few chances going forward, but not anywhere close to clinical finishing on the day. You know, maybe we should talk about what it means when we're missing Nikki. How is that affecting our our hold up play, our link up play? And it's not so much that I think Jess is totally at blame here because we know this is not her preferred position. But I do think we miss something when she's filling in for Nikki. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jess, I mean, Jess is a very skillful player and has got a lot of good about her, but she's not a hold up striker. She's not somebody who's going to get the ball and uh, and and use it until somebody else is up there. She's not going to be the player that's in the box waiting for the ball. Um, we saw that last season. You know, we, we said Rachel Williams was really our only player that did that, and without Kit, she struggled to do that. So again, we found I think in this game, us going somebody get in the box. You know, be be in there, be be putting pressure on people. And a lot of the shots again came from a distance out, which I think Rianne highlighted in her post-match interview that those shots were coming from too far out and we needed to to get closer in. And I think that's what we suffer from when we don't have an out-and-out striker and why we were all so nervous when we realised we only had one out-and-out striker after Rachel Williams left. Only Nikki, we knew we needed another striker, but then Rachel left and um, we only got Nikki. So that is still, for me, a key position is to have a backup striker um, or a striker challenging Nikki for that position, particularly given that Nikki seems to be a little bit injury prime yeah I think I I will say about Jess that like yeah well I don't think she's a striker some good moments did come from times when she moved out wide and played as a winger (laughs) uh but yeah she certainly wasn't playing as a striker uh or well you know she certainly wasn't fulfilling the duties that um Brianne requires of a striker I think she doesn't play well with her back to the goal and she, as you said, doesn't retain the ball up there. Those are just not skills that she does. Yeah, I almost I think- wonder if it might have been more advantageous to be playing a front two with two of our more traditional wingers so that they would have more opportunity to play wide and play off of each other, you know? Yeah, almost I mean, I think- like switch Jess and Celine there, I think. I think I'd rather give Celine the chance centrally and let Jess run up and down the wing. Yeah, that's Although, a good idea. I think Celine did some decent work on the wing. She was more, she was reasonably effective there. Um, I, I also think that Drew was doing a lot of that hold up work, and I think she, this was one of her better games, especially in the first half. She was, you know, if you looked in the box and you wanted someone with their back to goal, that was most often likely to be Drew. 
Um, so it's then thinking about how she plays with Jess in those positions in the center. And I, this game, it didn't work as well as it has previously. I think they work better when Jess is on the wing. Um, obviously in some games we've seen Evelina getting forward and she did occasionally as well in this game more than she has sometimes so she was obviously given a little bit more freedom to do that and we saw Angerad staying back a little bit more so I thought that was interesting because she was the person sometimes setting up things through the middle um, and getting the ball into the box but yeah not having enough players in the box then when she did that and we also saw Ash going, you know, we joked earlier, but, you know, she was actually in the box to try and get some headed goals, didn't always come. I mean, the ball never connected with her. But there was that one opportunity where I think, was it a cross from Jess um, that the um, burger had to come out to Ash to save, which otherwise she'd have had a clean, clean header. So there were some moments but it was also, I mean, this isn't what we've really been talking about, but just thinking about Ash, it was one of those games where you could see that what she does less well, and we all are massive Ash fans, and I love her dearly, and I'm always happy to watch her. And she had moments this game where she was, like, exciting, and especially where she came inside and she was making things happen. But she does have this tendency to pass where she thinks a player should be, not to where a player is always. And you saw that occasionally with her passing forwards, both to Jess, but also to Celine, into the spaces that she imagined they were running into, that they weren't running into, um, or just slightly overcooking things. And I feel like that happens more when she's getting frustrated, when people are not playing in positions that they're fully used to, because it feels like that not lack of sense of where everybody should be. But I think sometimes that playing into where the player should be is actually a method of saying, come on, next time, that's where you need to be. And if there's no other if there's no other ball on, then, you know, it is, is a bit of a learning curve. And, I, you know, I've seen some coaching things where, you know, they kind of encourage that kind of behaviour because if that's where the ball should be, um, then that's, if that's where the player should be, then that's, you know, a good way of kind of indicating that and, talking to your teammates without talking to them. So I don't necessarily consider that to be a problem from, from Ash's perspective, certainly not early on in the game. Later on, maybe you kind of need to, to try and play it around. But if if players, if there's just nobody there to pass to, what do you do? Fair point. I mean, I think I've just learned something about Jess Naz while we were talking about this, because it really made me think back, which is like, I don't think many of her strengths lie with her being off the ball because thing she's very fast we all know this but she doesn't run on to balls as much as you think she might which is why I don't think the two of Jess and Drew being centrally worked very well because like Drew likes to play balls for people to run on to and Jess runs with the ball and she's so good with the ball and I just wonder like the games we've been really critical of her have been games where we didn't have the ball like against City as well and I think it goes for like you know, when someone plays a ball over the top and she's chasing it, I don't think she likes to do that. And then the other thing that's even bigger is she doesn't seem to lead the press as well as Nicola does. And like, she runs around, she goes to all the right places, but at no point are you actually convinced that she is trying to win the ball or that she might win the ball or that she's successfully putting pressure on the other team. And so I just wonder whether like, you know, we saw her do really well against Brighton and I just wonder whether we're going to start seeing her do better in games where we have more possession, but in games like this, you see like Ash play a ball to where she thinks Jess should be and Jess isn't running onto it because Jess doesn't like to run onto balls. Like that's just not the player she is, you know? That's my new hypothesis. <laughs> Although she did score that goal um, against Brighton where she was running onto Cho's ball from the kickoff. Yeah, that's um, true. And she has, we've seen her running onto balls. I mean, I, I'm, but it I'm getting like I, past the defense. Like it didn't break the line. Do you know what I mean? Like she wasn't like yeah. running, charging down. Like I can't describe how that was different, but like it was like in line with, like she was sideways like she saw the ball get played and like let it run by her not where like she was running forwards and the ball came over the top like there's I somehow, see what you're trying to say some, yeah. <laughs> like 
difference there to me. I don't know the technical terminology for it, but like, like we had the ball and like, it was a pass to where Jess, like where Jess had everything like in her view. I think I need to watch it back more on that later. I think Celine had a great game and a lot of good stuff came from her on that right wing, particularly early on. I think um, she looked really good again. Um, again, problems with people being in the box and doing anything with, with that ball, but also she was making some good challenges out there and uh, looking again, like she's going to be a great player for us. So, uh, you know, positives there as well. I and mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of the positives were there to be seen in terms of the build up play, the final ball, as we know, is problematic and we had some issues defensively, but some of the build-up play was starting to show again. Uh, and, and, yeah, I think it was building on where we've been. But I do think as well, you look at Ash's tweet after the game and she clearly wasn't happy with the situation and how she played and how the team had played. So I think um, that's good news as well, because if you're going up against Chelsea and you, you kind of expect to come away with a loss, but if you're coming away going, no, we're not happy with that, then I, you know, there was a time when the, even the managers were a bit like, we're playing Arsenal, you know, <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to get a result. And we're not seeing that now, which is a, which is a good change in, in, in how they approach the games, I think. Well, I mean, we did lose three nil. It is a bad loss. If you look at it just in terms of the scoreline, I do think it was a less painful loss than, well, massively less painful than the Arsenal game but even then the Man City game it was a less frustrating game to watch so that there were periods where I mean in the first half we did have about 50% of possession now maybe we weren't being as incisive with that possession as we should have been and that went down in the second half Um, but we were at least in the game it felt like we were competing more regularly and in a way that we hadn't done in some of those other games but at the same time, that scoreline really does show that quality difference, not just in terms of who was who was a starter, but also in terms of the substitutes. And, you know, we, as Caroline, you said right at the start, we had a relatively thin bench and we had substitutes who came on and they were fine. Um, Ros was fine. She was fine. And actually, I was really, really relieved that they came on and we were able to give our players on yellow cards Um get them off because I was at that point much more worried that they were going to get a second yellow and not play in the future game than I was that we were going to lose the game which had already pretty much gone um so that was good but it didn't it wasn't something that radically changed what we were doing in a way that enabled us to surprise Chelsea or put them on the back foot especially well, I kind of know that we kind of know that's where we're at in terms of we've got a better bench than we had last season if they're all fit, but we still don't necessarily have a bench that will change the game. And um, we're still mm-hmm. kind of seeking that level of, of depth. Um, so I, I don't know that that, you know, that that would be surprising anyway. Um, I mean, I, I think what we've seen is that Chelsea, when they take their shot, when they get a shot, they take it. You know, again, I think. There, it wasn't. Didn't feel like there was shot after shot after shot. We didn't feel like our goal was under huge amounts of pressure a lot of the time. So I think again, that's you know that's a good thing. And when you're playing against the quality of Sam Kerr and Lauren James, they're likely to, to get a good shot off. And if that happens, you're going you're going to concede. So whilst in the moment of the game, um, and at the end of the game, it's when you've been there and watching it, it's quite depressing. Actually, when you come away from it and look at it. I think realistically from where we thought we'd be, this is Chelsea. This is the champions of the Super League from last season. They've only improved their squad this season because they're still fighting for more because they want Champions League success. They're they're going to be a team that is going to take us a long time to catch up with. Hopefully the Manchester teams, with the way they've been playing, they might show some a bit more um, ability to be caught. But I don't think Chelsea are one of those teams at the moment. You know, the I think my two main disappointments from this game, one of them was the disciplinary concerns with having both of our wingers on yellows for the majority of the game. It felt like, um, you know, Celine especially, I felt like we're probably pretty lucky that she was taken out when she was because she was on the razor's edge. <laughs> Oh yeah, so she's kind so of definitely liable for a red card at some point. And, and I think Ash has... I would have to go and and look, but she's got to be close to a yellow card suspension already. 
So that's a bit disappointing. But the other thing is that in the second half, you know, we talked about the first half, the three goals from Chelsea, it is what it is. But in the second half, they were already starting to look ahead to their midweek Champions League game and started subbing out some of those top players we've talked about that were so deadly against us. And I really would have liked to see us make more of a push to at least get a goal back, you know, be thinking of that goal difference. And we did have a few bright moments. I have to say, you know, Rosella almost immediately after she came on had that one opportunity that just missed touch, you know, and Chioma. Um, one thing I appreciated from her when she came on was that she was putting in some actually pretty good crosses. And if we did have that kind of traditional target person striker, we could have maybe converted some of those into goals and, and drew to be fair. I think she got on the end of one of them and just skied it over the bar. And that was, you know, obviously not a good thing, but at least the, uh, those sort of attacking patterns are happening um, with Chioma on the field. So I would love to see more of her soon. Um, Is there anything y'all took away from our offense in the second half? Yeah. I think one thing I would say is that like, okay, to be fair, I was like getting ready for, to watch the world cup. So I didn't watch the second half as closely as I could have. It seemed to me like Chelsea were using it as an opportunity to practice sitting back against stronger teams. So I think it's like, like, cause you know, prepping for the champions league, like prepping to like be on the defensive. I think that was a specific instruction that is a little woo woo for me, but like, I think they were kind of just like, yeah, let them come at us. It's fine. Like it'll be good practice. Um, I liked what I saw from Chi as well. It I can't help but think like, you know, she came back from her suspension and with everything going on, I'm like, I'm happy to have her as like a, a solid winger option. But like, it's I, mean, I just wish we had another like solid striker option or like a, ten, a number 10 or some sort of like creative central player. So it, I, I did like that, but I'm kind of just like, Oh, but it's not quite what we need. If I can jump back in just on Chi, you know, we didn't get to see a ton of her last season just because her suspension happened so early. But in the few games that she did play, I can remember her being a player who was pretty good at running onto balls. So it could be that she could be a striker option in this sort of like, you know, desperation scenario where we're without Nikki, Um, you know, maybe give her a try instead of Jess at that position. I don't know. I'd take it. All right. Well, you know, this is one of those games we just kind of have to put in the rearview mirror now, I think. Um, across the league, though, it was it was a pretty interesting weekend of matches, and I ended up watching a lot more of the league than I normally get a chance to. I'll quickly go through the results from across the league. So we had Everton uh, hosting Man City, and City came away with the 2-1 win. Arsenal were hosting Manchester United at the Emirates and I guess the marquee match of the weekend. And that one ended in a pretty thrilling last minute, uh, three, two win for Manchester United. And then we got our first draw of the season in the WSL. Finally, Brighton had a three, three draw with Liverpool. Aston Villa were the three, one winners over Reading. And then West Ham eked out a one nil win over Leicester who still have zero points. Thoughts, comments? <laughs> well, the old uh, Arsenal Man United was one of those games where you're like, I really don't want Arsenal to win, but I'm not sure I want Man United to beat them. Uh, so, yeah, I would I, I would have liked to draw, I think, in that one. But if one of them had to win, I guess, for uh, uh, for this point in time, Manchester United were the best team to win. So that was, it was quite interesting to see Man United do seem to be stepping up their game this season. So, um Hopefully that's um, an interesting sign there. Um, I think also, yeah, Leicester not playing badly, but just not getting anything anywhere, which seems really difficult. Um, Liverpool, again, struggling um, to find a rhythm and uh, well, getting something out of the game, getting our first draw, but still, you know, um, and coming back into it. And Rachel Furness proving that she's not done as a, Super League player just yet with her goal. Um, but uh, yeah, some interesting results. And I think uh, it's an in- interesting shaping up league. I think, yeah, Villa, Rachel Daly's making a big difference for Villa. Uh, and we'll see how long that goes on. 
Yeah, she's uh, currently tied with Bunny Shaw for most goals in the league. I think it is a really important example of how much difference a single player can make. And obviously it's not just her who's gone to Villa. They've got a cut. They bought a couple of players over the summer, but I know that Abby was saying a lot about how defensive and how unable Villa were to score last season. And you just look at the difference that having Rachel Daly has made. And I think there's been quite a lot of chat from Spurs fans about, you know, Villa were a less good team than we were last season if Rachel Daly wanted to come to the UK, that is a real missed opportunity for us in terms of not signing her. Um, and there aren't a lot of players, obviously, who are going to be like that, who are willing to come to a non-top three, top four team and who have that game-changing capacity. And it's one of those things to think about in terms of, um, I mean, obviously nothing that we can do about it, but there is there are questions about whether or not the Spurs management are thinking about how do they achieve that kind of coup in the future. And obviously it's not an easy one to pull off. There aren't hundreds of Rachel Daly's floating around wanting to come to the WSL and not going to Chelsea, Arsenal, Man City or Man United. But yeah, they do make a difference if you can get them. Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think from Rachel Daly's perspective, she wanted to be further north, didn't she? I think we talked about it at the beginning of the season and thought mm-hmm. she might have chosen that because she's more from that neck of the woods. So, I, you know, this is the other thing we have to think about is, yes, we can have our own opinion on all these things, but we don't actually know what the players are wanting and needing um, and what the conversations that are happening are, you know. And I think we've clearly kind of got a... a focus of looking at younger players to bring through which isn't surprising given Rianne probably knows better the younger players that are around from her previous roles so uh, that's clearly something that, that that she's focused on yes to have a player like Rachel Daly would be great I still don't think I think that Rachel Daly will make a difference to Villa being one of the bottom of the table to one of the top half of the table certainly I still don't think just buying Rachel Daly would have been the answer to top four for us. I think that it's more than a one player um, option. Um, and as I say, sounds like Rachel Daly probably didn't want to come to London. Um, so we have to bear that in mind. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's interesting because we've done, we did the Alex Morgan thing, um, which worked in some ways, but on the pitch, not so much. Um so yeah, it's it's a, it's weighing up, isn't it? It's an interesting conundrum to have, I guess, as a manager, um, looking at the players that are available and what they bring, and and it's difficult for us to understand sometimes. But we're not actually seeing what they're seeing in terms of what's available and what you know which players actually might be interested. Um, I think we have to kind of trust our recruitment policy has been pretty good. I think after, over the last few years, um, yes, we're at an opportunity to to step it up now. And I think the fact that we paid for Celine demonstrates that we are willing to step it up a bit, but how much we can step it up is is, is the next question, I guess. One thing I will say is that Bethany Balser has been in London for quite a while now. So I'm kind of like scratching my chin and I'm like, please be talking about a loan. Please be talking about a spring loan. You know, and it sounds like the club... Spurs women specifically the women's team had um, invited her to come to the stadium so I, we're, we're not going to get into conspiracy theories here uh, <laughs> but we can dream I love a good conspiracy I will say I spoke to Ash about the whole Barcelona thing and she said yeah somebody forwarded that to me um, i.e the rumor so clearly she hasn't had any contact from from Barcelona which is good news and and I did confirm that you know her she she did repeat that she intends to end her career at Spurs. So um, that's good news. Um, obviously, it doesn't change the fact that there was a certain Barcelona player clearly at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. For context for the listeners, um, th- there was a rumour going around on Twitter about a week ago that there would allegedly be the chance of a Ash Neville and um, what is her first name? Bon Mati from Barcelona swap, Aitana. basically. Aitana, thank you, yes. Yeah. So that that was definitely one of the more um, wild rumors we had heard in connection with Spurs, I think. 
Um, yeah, so I saw her numbers recently, and obviously they're phenomenal. They're like 99s and like the, the sort of like shooting section and the passing section. But they are very low in the tackling and pressure section, like literally bottom percentiles. She's absolutely not coming for Spurs. We do not. We do not sign players like that. Like, obviously, she's a phenomenal player. She's a world class player. She'd make us so much better if she did come. But I really like I think Ramona Petzelberger is the only player I can think of who we've signed who didn't have just like stellar pressures tackling like defensive numbers. And she just doesn't. Maybe that's to do with Barcelona. But I will say I thought it was interesting after that rumor popped up. So definitely not a like for like swap by any means. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> but combined, Maybe in like, terms of vibes, I don't know. But but if you combine them, they would be the perfect player. And like you know, I remember saying when we were watching her in the Euros, Bon Matty, I mean, she is not just a phenomenon, but she is also, she bosses the whole pitch. She is telling every other player what to do. And we need a player like that. She's clearly not coming. But if I had to pick a dream player to come, she is she is my dream player to come. She would just be a total joy and would make everything Oh my God, we would just be in bliss every week. But I she also, I think, fits into that good person category. As as I understand it, during the Euros, even after they'd lost, she spent a lot of time in being interviewed by everybody who wanted to interview her, and just you know. So from that perspective of a good person, she fits the bill. And I do think you know you can afford to have one player on the pitch whose 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 ability is shooting, not pressing. Yeah, so can we just have her as our appointed fantasy player? Like yeah. that we the door is open. We the door will, is open. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just want to go backwards a little bit. I think just to take issue slightly with what Sean was saying about the fact that we go for younger players. I mean, this is the window when we recruited Drew, Amy, Angarad. We recruit older players as well, and we have our history of recruiting both older players and these sort of youth players. What we don't recruit a lot of is sort of peak period players. So players at 25, 26, we tend to recruit them either very early 20s or late 20s, early 30s. Um, Don't you think that's indicative of where we are as a club at the moment in terms of those peak players are going to go to the top four? If they're if they're in peak form, so what we're looking at is getting the experience of those players who've played at that level, who can bring that kind of um, knowledge to us, and then the younger players who might, in a year or two or three or four, be those peak players, and trying to guess who those players are going to be. So I think I think we haven't got enough weight as a club yet, unless we find a player who is thoroughly unhappy where they are and sees the vision and the and I think you know we have got everybody talks about the the family atmosphere and the great thing and the, you know the training ground is great so I think we have got a lot and if we were to get fifth for a second season we might be starting to push on but we've only done it once so far so if we if we can do it again then I think we've got an even better springboard to say those players you know if you're wanting to make a mark if you're wanting to not just go and play in a team that's going to guarantee you medals, but actually might make make you the superstar of the team, then you might get those. Yeah, I think this is probably a good time to transition to some of the listener questions that we got, which we got quite a few this time. So thank you to everyone who sent in a question. I've kind of paraphrased a few of these and combined them because there was a lot of overlap as well. But, you know, kind of with what we were just talking about, Lauren asked us, how long do we think it's going to be in terms of how many seasons or how many transfer windows until Spurs are realistically challenging for a top four or top three spot? So I think the question or the crux of this question is finding that balance between not losing ground, but still making steady progress, um, you know, season by season. So how how would y'all interpret this one? Yeah, I think it's a difficult one because as I say, you know, those top four clubs aren't standing still. They are still looking to put pressure because we haven't had success in the Champions League and they'll all want that. So they're continuing to put pressure on. We still have a, a lack of depth in terms of, uh, as as a as a game, we still have a lack of depth in terms of those top quality players. There, there aren't a lot of them about. Um, it's not like they they can't all go to the top four if you see what I mean they they can all go to the top four so 
it's going to be difficult for us to attract those players. So I, I think it's difficult to say how many how many transfer windows it's going to take, apart from anything else as well, because it's it, with the men's game, I guess there's a bit more regularity in terms of players that are available um, and kind of knowing what the cost of that is going to be. Whereas with the women's teams, we're only really starting to see actually players moving mid-contract and things like that. Um, so I think it's still a bit of an unknown, really. I mean, I think a good few seasons yet before we're getting, unless unless you're Manchester United or your Manchester City or your Arsenal's have a really bad season. And I think that's what we saw last season was the Manchester sides really starting slowly, giving us a glimpse of something. But then we saw how easy it was for them to make up that ground. And yes, we messed up again in games that we shouldn't have done, but um, they did make up that ground quite easily. So I still think, realistically, if you're talking about not relying on other teams messing up, we've got a good few seasons before anybody's going to be challenging the top four at the moment. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up kind of player availability because that's one of the questions that JC asked us which was even if funds are available for signings, are there players available? And, you know, I think it's fair to point out, Sean, that, you know, obviously we don't have insight into who exactly is available, but we know that a lot of those top players might be reluctant to, you know, if they're coming from another league, maybe they want to be going into a top team in our league and they're not willing to, you know, take what's seen as a step down and be in a team that's, you know, on more of a project trajectory. But I do think it's, it could be sometimes there's a case of, are we asking around? Like, are we approaching players? Cause I think that can be part of it too. Um, Cause to me, you know, from the kind of rumblings we've heard, it sounds like there was an aspect of that to Aston Villa signing Rachel Daly. You know, she wanted to come back home, but they were proactive about it. So do y'all have a different perspective on that? I think that's a good point. I think it's hard to know. Obviously, the market for female players is much smaller than the market for male, and that makes it a lot more complicated. But there is also this thing about, I mean, I'm wondering to what extent it was important that last season Aston Villa got Jill Scott on loan. So they had a senior England player playing for them, even though it was on loan. And the kinds of precedents that sets for what kind of club people start to think it is and how important some of those symbolic links are for enabling a club to make the next steps. And if that's something that the team needs to start thinking about in terms of recruitment, not just in terms of who we want, but how having particular players now makes it easier for us to attract other players in the future. And so I think there's a lot of, and I'm sure that the club is doing a lot of this and there are different priorities that you have to balance out, but we haven't got an, 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 we haven't got a full squad at the moment. So even at the start of this season, we could have recruited a couple more people. Obviously there's scope to recruit people on loan in January, but I think it's, I'd be curious about how much that kind of thinking is going on about how you attract people that attract the next wave. I think the Jill Scott thing is interesting because apparently um, Emma Sanders reported at the time that we actually asked to sign Jill Scott first uh, and that we were close to signing her, except for City wouldn't loan her to us because they viewed us as competition for Champions League spots. And so she went to Villa instead And I just wonder how often that kind of thing happens and like whether it puts us at a disadvantage, like that one spell of time where we were in third place last year, because I could see stuff happening. Like we always talk about Beth England. It's like, why would Chelsea give her to us? Like that's only going to strengthen us and weaken them. So we need to look for players elsewhere. And in my mind, the best place to do that is actually players who would normally be joining the NWSL straight out of US college systems, because there's a lot of upheaval going on with the NWSL right now, particularly surrounding the draft. Um, Things with the NWSL draft are starting to like change a bit. And I think there's a lot more room there than there was in the past to get young players who are really, really good, who 
maybe don't want to go into the whole NWSL system. And I think having a coach like Rianne, who has a reputation for developing young players is like the perfect attraction. So pay them whatever they want and tell them that we have a coach that's good at developing young players and get them here. I think that's the way we have to do it. I wonder also with the Jill Scott thing, how much the fact that she and Rachel Daly were playing for the Lionesses over the summer helped because Rachel Daly could say to her, is it a good place to go? You know, if you're thinking about going somewhere that's a lesser team, if you've got somebody who you respect saying, no, it's a good setup, it's a good place to go, I've enjoyed my time there, how much that helps as well. So a direct response rather than a kind of indirect response. I mean, I think Jill Scott was was unlikely to come to us as well because her life is, uh, again, further north than, than London. So because she's got a coffee shop and all that kind of stuff outside of football so again I would have thought it was a long shot for Jill Scott to come to us but you know that that kind of word of mouth thing I think is quite important to players particularly when you're looking at players who in the women's game I think particularly are quite interested in what's the culture of the club what kind of club am I going into because historically that's been the key thing maybe younger players coming through will stop looking at that so much and just look at the money but I think historically that you we, you notice that with our conversation with Keris, you know, the priorities are different with the older players and the players in the women's game than they might be in the men's game. Um, so I don't know how much that's changing with the way that things are. And I, I guess probably it will change as things change. But also we've got to think about the whole pyramid and not just the top of the WSL, because if we start just handing out money, to teams in the W from teams in the WSL, Chelsea don't make money, Arsenal don't make money. Um, they're still reliant on their men's team. You know, if the new Chelsea owner had come in and said, actually, don't care about women's football, he could have just nixed the team and they would have, but well, they wouldn't have been able to exist by themselves. Um, and we've got to bring the whole pyramid with us. So I, I, I worry when people say just hand them out as much money as they want because. You can't. I mean, you can't I'd like them. the players to get paid, though, is the main thing. Like, I'm not saying like <laughs> make a bad business model. I'm just saying like pay the but as much money more. as they want. I mean, you know, yeah. let's face it. In the real world, thirty thousand pounds is what the average UK person makes. So, if you're saying, you know, and I'm not blaming Sam Kerr at all. At all you know, if you were offered a quarter of a million pounds, you'd take it. But there's got to be some kind of notion of We've got to have parity across the league. And if you look at what the lowest players are being played in the league versus Sam Kerr, you you know, it's just an unfair comparison. And there's got to be a way of making sure that that is closer together. And so long as people are being paid a wage that they can live on, that's where we need to be starting at this point in time, not, not going for the astronomical wages and replicating the men's game, because there are so many ways in which we do not want to replicate the men's game. That's just one. I do think it is interesting, though, that we talked about so many other like intangible factors that go into recruitment other than just pure investment, because it can be easy to forget about those things, you know, even if it's just like competition with other teams and them not wanting to loan to us, players wanting to be closer to home, you know, a lot of things go into it. I do think in terms of like team culture, that's obviously been a good um, priority for Spurs when they are recruiting players. Cause we've heard, you know, almost every player that came in this season talking about how they wanted to be in this, this team culture, but also Rianne has been very focused on selecting players who fit that culture. We've talked a little bit around issues of loans here as well and who loans to whom. And I think it's really interesting because Loans happen within the WSL much more than they seem to happen within the Premier League and that you're Mm -hmm. loaning players to competition as opposed to loaning them to lower league teams. And it's interesting to see the patterns of loans. So, for example, there were a lot of Arsenal loans to West Ham. We've had Manchester City and Chelsea loaning players to Everton and to, um, I think they did, well, there's some Villa loans, but there are these loanies that go out and they have these interesting effects, both in terms of what we were talking about before, like, okay, so Villa was able to get a player that we weren't able to get because we were seen as competition. So they potentially 
provide players for teams who are lower down, but also because those players then can't play against the top teams. They also then weaken teams who are playing the top teams. And I think that it's interesting where it's starting to happen quite a lot and with quite high quality players. So we've been talking about how well Jess Park's been doing this season. She's on loan. We've got these players all around the WSL who are potentially uh, having a quite a big impact on how the game is played and we don't seem to be very heavily involved in that last season we did loan out a couple of players to we played out loaned out a player to Leicester and we've loaned out players this season to Coventry we had one loanee from Arsenal um last season but yeah she played about three games so it wasn't a massive difference um, but I guess just in thinking about recruiting, Spurs are in this weird situation where we are neither we're not benefiting at either end from low knees very much. No, that that is so true. You know, I think as a fan base, we can often feel like our club is ignored by the media, but I don't think the other clubs are blind to what's happening in terms of our rapid progression. Like they know we're becoming a threat. And it's it's interesting that you brought up Jess Park because I was just thinking of that too. I watched the entire Everton versus City game and I did not think City looked particularly great. And if Jess Park had been allowed to play against her parent club, that could have been a different result. So it definitely affects, you know, the, the league as a whole. But good news on that front from our perspective is that Esther Morgan is back playing for Coventry, back on the pitch playing time, which is great news. Um, I personally am a big fan of, of her as and one of our own come through our own system, been a Spurs fan for many years as well. So I'm hoping that she can, I mean, the rumour is that that she's due back with us in January, but that Coventry want to keep her, I think one of you was saying. So hopefully um, that is the case from the point of view of then we've got the option of what to do with her um, and whichever way mm-hmm. Rianne takes it, either she'll get some game time at Coventry and, you know, and and do well there, or she can come back and shore up our slightly dodgy bench. Particularly if we're pushing Ash forward, it might be useful to have another defender available, although Keris is back, of course. So, yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of Coventry United, that is our next opponent. We're going to be playing them next weekend in the League Cup. And, you know, they have not had a good season so far. The only win that they've had this season is also in the Conti Cup versus Southampton, the fourth team in our group. So, you know, it's you never want to underestimate a team, but this should be another situation where we can put in a statement result. And, you know, in addition to Esther Morgan being on loan with Coventry, one of our young goalkeepers, Eleanor Heaps, is also there. She just broke her finger, though, so she's going to be out till January. (laughs) So we won't really be able to track her progress until the new year. But do y'all have any thoughts about this upcoming matchup? Unfortunately, I, it sounds like the game might be on Spurs play, but only for replay, not um, to watch live, as far as we've heard. Yeah, well, the Conti Cup, unfortunately, has a history of not being shown. I mean, last season, it was the group stages weren't shown anywhere. So unless you were at the game, you didn't get to see it. Um, this is the third season in a row we've played Coventry. We played them in the FA Cup one season, and then last season and this season we're playing them in the Conti Cup. As I say, they shouldn't cause us any problems, but last season they were the team that nearly scared us when Becky did some of her ball skills at feet and lost the ball to an on-rushing on, on forward and uh, they scored. And at that point, the management had decided at half-time already to take off most of our experienced defenders. So we were left with some very young defenders and um, Coventry almost came back into that game. So don't write them off completely. Um, but they have had a roller coaster over the last couple of seasons in terms of management. And they thought they were, you know, after the great escape last season, then I think the people who bought them realised they uh, didn't um, quite anticipate exactly what that was going to mean. And so they've kind of fallen backwards in that regard a little bit. So worrying times for Coventry United fans, I think. But hopefully it will be a, a, a game that we can win. Touch wood, because these are always the banana skins you've got to be wary of. Yeah, well said. So before we wrap up, I will also mention that there's a new documentary out on Spurs play about Spurs women. It follows the team from, you know, the grassroots level all the way up to the promotion to the WSL. Not all of us have seen it yet, so we'll probably save discussion of that documentary for the next episode. 
But yeah, definitely encourage people to check that out. I know we had a listener question uh, from Sam who was asking us, what's your assessment of where the team is, given that it hasn't been that long since the team professionalized. And I think this documentary honestly gives the best answer uh, far better than we could in our, you know, only so long podcast. So yeah, check that out. Any other closing thoughts? Just wanted to say really that the um, game is definitely going to be on Spurs play. The only question is whether or not it's going to be live. So you will have a chance to watch the Coventry game. And yeah, as John said, as Caroline said, we are looking forward to hopefully seeing lots of goals. I'm confident it's not going to be a banana skin. The one thing we are seeing this season is that Spurs are proving pretty effective at beating teams who are ranked below them. So despite our hiccups against the top teams, I'm I'm confident. I think we should do some spur we need to do some score predictions too. Yeah, that's that's true. Okay, let's let's go around. I'll I'll kick it off. I think we're going to win five nil. I'm being bold. See, I was gonna go six one, but you know, like <laughs> maybe yeah, six one. I'm going six one. I will go with four one. I think it sounds like they've had a pretty rough season so far. I want to go, I want to go like six nil, but I just I don't know if I can put my heart in that. I guess I have to. Let's go six nil. I mean, it depends. Do we think we're going to start the start? You know, our starting eleven, or do we think we're going to see uh, Gracie Pierce getting a start and things like that, and that will have an effect as well on on where it goes. I mean, I'm in in many ways. I'm hoping we give people like Gracie a a start um, because against a team like Coventry, I think that's a good place to be. We can, you know, we haven't got that big a squad that it's all going to be second stringers, but giving some of them a, a chance. Yeah, I think yeah. compared to some of our, you know, young players last season who, when they came in, it was kind of like, oh, they're not quite at this level yet. She looked really comfortable when we saw her. So I actually would like to see her get some significant game time. And our game after the Coventry the following week is going to be against Reading. So not a top four team. So I don't necessarily think that rotation is like a huge concern with it not being a midweek weekend situation either. But yeah, we'll see. But apologies to any Coventry uh, adjacent fans who might be hearing this. I think we, uh, I have not given y'all much hope. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think like, even if we do play some of our non-starters, like granted, this was a couple months back, but I don't know that things have gotten all much that much better. They did lose eight, nothing to Sheffield United, which like was a game with circumstances around it. Like, I think that was the game where Eleanor heaps had a pretty scary injury Mm -hmm. and got like stretchered off. It sounded like a head injury. So, you know, obviously like that can be an issue with nerves, but it really just doesn't look like looking through the results. Like they just lost five, one to Durham. Even and they're not scoring play. much at all. Yeah. Is, even, the, is the key thing. But I think you guys are right. We, I mean, we haven't actually got that many Academy players who are training regularly with the first team. It's just Gracie and Lena Gunning Williams. So she's the only one who I could think of who might also get some game time from what we know about the team. But I'm hoping like, that Ramona comes back and it's her opportunity to get back in the team. We have actually seen her in a couple of training videos. So she seems to be around again. Um, I'd love for her to score a couple of goals and feel like she's got some rhythm. Get yeah. Keris starting because she yes. hasn't had time to play. Yes to all of the above. This is, a, <laughs> I think, a really good fixture to have coming up, honestly. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We have been N17 Women. You can find us on Twitter as long as it still exists at N17 Women. We are all on there as well. We will talk to you all next time to discuss how this match went in the Conti Cup. Come on, you first.